0: 2 Kings chapter 19, and we will do the first 13 verses tonight. We'll finish up the chapter next Sunday night, Lord willing. But this is a direct continuation of chapter 18, the events there, where we see that Assyria has invaded Judah. They've captured a bunch of cities, and they've sent a massive army to Jerusalem. And the leader of the negotiation team that comes with the army, the Rabshakeh, he declares there's not going to be any negotiations. We're not here to negotiate. You up there on the wall, don't trust in your king. Don't listen to him when he says to trust in your God, because if you don't agree to all of our terms, your king nor your God can rescue you from us, and we will destroy you. And so when Judah's negotiation team takes this message back to King Hezekiah, their clothes are already torn because of the blasphemy they've had to endure. And this message, of course, was designed to terrify, and so also the terror that they have experienced. Now, the, the reason that the negotiation team came forward, but there were no negotiations, is because the speech he gave was designed to instill fear in the people, so that they would hand over Hezekiah to the Assyrians and then surrender. So the question is now, given that the enemy's trying to motivate and turn his own people against him, what's Hezekiah's response going to be to this fearful news? Chapter 19, we begin in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth And he went into the house of the Lord. Hezekiah's first reaction to Rabshakeh's threat is he tears his clothes. Now, I thought at first, I said, what piece of clothing do I have in my closet that I can bring and give everyone a demonstration? And I thought, I don't think I can rip any clothes apart. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure how sturdy clothing was back then, but tearing one's clothes requires a bit of effort, don't you think? Like, that that's something that you're really going to have to, you got to work yourself up to that. And that kind of effort, therefore, reflects powerful internal emotions, right? You know, I was a teenager. I had a bad relationship with my dad at the time. Neither of us were believers, and I would hit the wall, I'd punch the wall. And every once in a while, you know, every once in a while as an adult, like you, you do something like that, and you're like, that hurts. Like, what was wrong with me? And it was because when you're a teenager, you got like emotions just like pouring out of everything, and you could be really out of control. And, and, and to get yourself to that place, you're going to rip your clothes. I mean, that's, that's a lot of emotion there. The Jewish people would tear their clothes uh, when they received news of evil deeds like For example, what happened on October 7th in Israel, that would be a clothes-tearing day back then. The horror of the events, what happened? What happened? And you hear about the evil that was done, you would tear your clothes. Or sometimes when it'd be news of not just like tragedy that had happened that was wicked out there, but just personal tragedy. You lost someone you loved, you'd tear your clothes. And so in this case, it's kind of a double whammy because there's evil that's being done, the Lord's being blasphemed, and then they've been threatened with their whole existence. And so he tears his clothes, and then he replaces it with, the Bible tells us, sackcloth. Sackcloth was a durable material, but it was very uncomfortable clothing. Uh, In fact, most of the time, we don't have like mourning clothes. Maybe you might have something you'd wear to a memorial service, but back then, they would have ceremonial mourning clothes, and they were sackcloth. And they were designed to be uncomfortable because you're mourning, or, or you would wear them if you were repenting. It was uncomfortable because the animal hair was still on it. And so in particular, they'd usually take an animal that had very coarse hair, like a goat. Like I can remember when we took our kids to some petting zoo or something, and I had never pet a goat before, and, and you go up and you pet little lambs or whatever, and they're all nice and woolly, dirty, but woolly. But then the goat, and it's like, that's not even pleasant. Like, it's not rubbing the cat or what, even a, a dog that's got, it doesn't have that really coarse hair, but like a goat, the hair is just not pleasant. It's rough, it's coarse. So they'd take hair like that or camel's hair or something along that lines, and, and then they would wear it, and so it'd be on the inside everything, and it was uncomfortable, and it was on purpose, uncomfortable. So the fact that he tears his, whatever clothes he's wearing at the time, likely some type of official royal clothing, and then he replaces it with this uncomfortable material, reflects both, he sees that there's a tragedy going on, but also there's no mourning to be had. No one's died yet in that sense, but there's repentance going on. In other words, by putting on sackcloth, Hezekiah is declaring that he sees their current dilemma as God's judgment, God's discipline in his life. Now, that opinion that he thinks this is God's discipline is probably due to some of the recent decisions that he's made. First off, the big one, the decision to rebel against Assyria. Now, if we take the whole story and we look at it from beginning to end, we will look at that and go, Hezekiah, that was not a bad decision. That was a good decision. You were not going to rest in the arm of flesh, but you were going to trust the Lord that He would sustain you and He would fight for you. That's not a bad thing. He acted in faith, trusting the Lord to protect His people from a superior force. But I don't know about you, but when I'm not in big picture mode where I can see the beginning, the middle, and the ending, and I can look back at that, but I'm in the middle, sometimes... In my decisions to step out in faith, it doesn't always look like the right decision, does it? I remember two years into our church plant at the other church, and I was absolutely convinced that I had not heard correctly from the Lord. I had made the biggest mistake of my life. I not only ruined my life, but I've ruined my entire family's life. Now I can't pursue a career. You know, I'm not going to be able to take care of my family. And I'm just a failure in every way. Maybe that's kind of how Hezekiah felt right now. I didn't hear from the Lord right. I misheard. And now the stakes are really high for this choice. I've ruined our whole nation. People have always said, hey, would you ever want to be like president or this or something like that? Not saying me in particular, but just like people ask that. And I'm like, no, I would not want that responsibility. I've got enough responsibility just being a husband and a dad enough to answer the Lord for. But maybe like me in your own life and what we might consider to be small things compared to Hezekiah's decisions and how, they, how many people they would impact, maybe you've experienced those thoughts. You step out in faith and it doesn't look like it's going well and you go, Lord, did I completely mishear you? I mean, have I, not, have I ruined everything? When we listen to those lies, that is an awful place to be in, because when you start thinking that way, then it means in every way you're not trusting the Lord anymore. You're not trusting to follow what He told you to do, what you felt like He told you to do, but neither are you trusting Him to lead you through anything maybe that you did do wrong. All you're doing is you're sitting there wallowing and going, well, now it's it's over. The truth is this. Let's say that Hezekiah did make a mistake. Even if he didn't hear correctly from the Lord, and even if he made a mistake in rebelling against Assyria, the solution to that mistake is to seek the Lord again so that God can lead you through that mistake. That's the correct way to handle that. Now, what's really cool about that approach to decision-making is it removes all the fear, right? It removes all the fear. See, the enemy, That's fear is from the enemy. The enemy comes to you, and he's like, you blew it. You didn't hear from God. You're totally in the wrong place for your life, and now it's over. Your kids are going to be messed up. Your career is going to be messed up. Your finances are going to be messed up. All the things he says to us, he brings that fear, and then we're like, "Ah, oh, God, oh, I didn't hear from the Lord." God doesn't do that. Like when we know that if we make a mistake because we're stepping out in faith, and it's not the Lord because we don't always hear clearly, right? It's totally relieving of all fear when you can say, Okay, God, I thought I heard from you, but maybe I made a mistake. So God, can you redirect me in the right direction? We don't have to walk around with that fear over us. But that's kind of where Hezekiah might be at right now. He might be thinking this was a mistake from the beginning, and now I've ruined everything. The second decision that he's probably thinking about is that going back to the king of Assyria and begging him to take him back as a vassal, that was a mistake. I exposed our weakness. I exposed my insecurity. And I can understand why Hezekiah would think that was a mistake. Because he made this decision, not because he sought the Lord again. The Lord said, no, Hezekiah, I didn't tell you to rebel. He didn't do that. He made it because he panicked. Assyria invaded, they started winning some battles and he panicked and he took matters into his own hand. Let me go just send this this gift to the the king of Assyria and recommit myself and ask him, well, well, name your tribute, I'll pay whatever you want. Just, Just please call off the invasion. That was a failure. Panic is always the wrong response when we've made a decision to trust the Lord. When you've made a decision to trust the Lord, once you've done that, you need to wait on the Lord. Turn to Psalm 27, my, one of my favorite Psalms, my favorite, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. I read this often to myself because I'm someone who needs to be reminded of these truths. But let's just look at verses 11 through 14. David starts the psalm by saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. You know, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall be afraid? And then he talks about all these scenarios, and he talks about his relationship with the Lord. And then we get down to verse 11. She's like, what do I do? I'm surrounded by enemies. Lord, I'm trusting in you, but what do I do? Where do I go from here? And so he prays this in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path. (laughs) I pray that prayer a lot. Lord, make this clear and simple because I need it clear and simple. And he says, because of my enemies. Do not deliver me over unto the will of my enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, such as breathe out cruelty. The enemy whispers cruel lies into our ears. David says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. A man enemy surrounded me, and I thought I was going under. He says, I would have given up. I would have panicked and given in, except for this. I believed that I was going to see God's goodness in the land of the living. And so here's his counsel to us, his charge to us. If you find yourself in this situation, he says, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I think we confuse waiting on the Lord with do nothing. That's not what waiting on the Lord means. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean do nothing. It means do the right thing. Do the right thing, which is to seek the Lord. Like David does here, teach me your way, lead me in a plain path. Maybe I got confused, Lord. Maybe I went this direction when you were saying go this way. So, Lord, I'm back again. Correct me, course correct me, and show me where to go from here. That's what waiting on the Lord is. Waiting on the Lord, it means to seek the Lord about whether we just need to stay the course or if we misheard Him, what new direction do we need to go? And when the Lord says, stay the course, well, then we need to trust that we'll see His goodness. We need to let Him strengthen our heart. Like David says here, be of a good courage and He shall strengthen your heart. Some of the most courageous things that I, I wouldn't consider myself to be very courageous, but sometimes the most, some of the most courageous things I've done in my life is just don't do anything. Just wait on the Lord and see it through. In those moments when you feel the panic rising up and you say, no, God, is this the way you want me to go still? Okay, it is. Well, then Lord, I've, I've just got to, I'm, I'm going to encourage myself. I'm going to look to you. And then he strengthens our heart. And we rest in the promise that we'll see his goodness in the land of the living. Now, the third decision that I can say for sure, definitely, Hezekiah is thinking about here of why this is God's discipline, is because he robbed the temple to pay off the king of Assyria. That, that was a moral failure. That was a moral failure. That was what his wicked father had done to the king of Assyria. He'd robbed the temple to pay him off. That's what so many of the evil kings had done throughout Judah's history. And this action is very shocking. It's very much out of Hezekiah's character because of his love for the Lord. The Bible tells us he was the best king Judah had since David, which brings up an important truth. Men and women who genuinely love God can have a moral failure they can. They can. I think one of the things that blew me away was when I was reading through the Bible and I realized Jesus never said Peter didn't mean what he said when he said, Lord, these guys might all ditch you, but I'll die for you. Jesus never questioned his, his level of commitment. He never questioned his sincerity. All he said was, Peter, I know you better than you know you that's the problem. You're sincere. You mean every word you're saying, but I know you better than you know you. And you're going to deny me three times before that, that cock crows. Peter was sincere. He meant everything he said to Jesus, but he fell asleep when he was supposed to be praying. And then he ended up betraying the Lord to the extent that he called down curses from God, like, God, strike me dead if I've ever, know, ever met Jesus. David's another example. He loved God, but he committed adultery and then covered it up by murdering one of his best friends. When we look at the life of Peter, the life of David, these horrible events, horrible failures, horrible moral failures, they're not the story of their whole life. Like, if you look at Peter from start to finish, like, we make fun of Peter sometimes, but the truth is, like, Peter's whole life, like, that's a pretty good record. If you say, Who would you like to be like? Uh, Peter's not a bad guy to say. God used him in a powerful way. He loved the Lord. He was very dedicated, very faithful, especially in the majority of the years of his life after Jesus rose from the dead. Look at David. Think of all the wonderful things and his relationship with God, all the victories in the sense of how he walked with God in difficult situations. These, neither of these lives, those stories are not indicative of the rest of their lives. And yet they happened. Most of their lives were spent trusting and obeying God, but these were serious, heavy moral failures. And Hezekiah's failure to, to trust the Lord but instead to rob the temple to pay off the king of Assyria, it's, it's right up there. But the track record of this, guy's, this king's life is godliness. And yet, this is a failure. And so I get why Hezekiah is thinking, this is the Lord. This is God's discipline. This is judgment. I'm going to wear sackcloth. But like Peter and David who found mercy when they repented, I think the main reason Hezekiah is putting on the sackcloth is because he's, they would wear it as a sign of repentance. He's saying, Lord, I recognize it. I recognize that I failed. And I don't want to keep failing. And so he goes to the temple. It doesn't tell us what he did there, but he's not a priest. so It's not like he could do any of that stuff there. So I can only imagine... He went to pray, maybe to bring an offering, maybe a sin offering, maybe a burnt offering just to say, Lord, I'm I'm resurrendering all this to you. I don't know what he did. But whatever he did, he was going to interact with the Lord on a personal level. And I would imagine probably to ask God to rescue him and the nation from this horrible situation. Now, that's not all he does. Look at verse 2. It says, And he sent Eliakim... This is one of the guys over his household, the house, the palace manager. He was also the, one of the, the leaders of the negotiation team. Shebna the scribe, another guy from the negotiation team. And then he also, it says, it says he sent the elders of the priests. So I don't know who these guys are. Elders just means the heads of the priestly families. So these would be respected individuals from the, the family of Aaron. I don't know who they were. I don't know why he picked them. But he sends them. And they're covered with sackcloth too. In other words, they're all signifying and mourning and repentance. And he sends them to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. Now, if you're wondering, this is indeed the same Isaiah who wrote the big book that starts the section of the Old Testament that we know as the major prophets, right? Isaiah 66 chapters, big book, right? You get to Isaiah, you're going to be there for a while. 17 years if I taught Isaiah. Isaiah, at this point, he had been God's prophet during Hezekiah's great-grandfather, his grandfather, and his father's reign. And Isaiah would end up being God's prophet during Hezekiah's son's reign as well. This was a guy, Isaiah, he was a guy who had been faithful to the Lord in every generation he'd lived in. Now, None of us know if we'll be alive as long as Isaiah was. None of us know if we'll have the impact that Isaiah had. But all of us can strive to have a testimony that says, hey, you were faithful in every phase of your life, right? All of us can strive for that. Now, I know some of you are giving me that look like, it's too late for that testimony for me, Will. Okay. What about the current phase of life you're in? You can be faithful from here on out, can't you? Like, you can make that commitment. can't do anything about the past. But you can make your testimony, Lord. I want my testimony to be at the very least that I'm faithful from this point on. When we read the Bible, it is so rare. It's not, okay, it's not non-existent, but it is definitely on the lower percentage side. When we look at people who finished well, it's just not common. So, One of the things that I constantly tell myself is, Will, don't be part of that, the crowd that didn't finish well. That's the majority. Be a part of the, the small percentage that did. I think of guys that I've known who finished well. And either in my conversations with them or in listening to them talk about their lives... Most of them said this, and I remember I told this to a lady once, and she said, that's so discouraging. Don't tell me that. They said this. They said, the older I got and the longer I walked with the Lord, the harder the battles were. That makes sense biblically if we see that most people don't finish well, right? I think we have this kind of, it's an American idea, right? Retirement, right? Gets easier when you get older. Work hard so you can... Kind of enjoy the fruits of your labor as you get older. Bible never says anything like that regarding our spiritual walk. never promises that it gets easier as it get, we get older. In fact, when we look at the scripture, we see that a lot of people face some of their greatest challenges in those latter stages of their life, and again, in talking to people I know that finished well, they would say things like i 'm fighting the biggest battles i 've ever fought in my life i 'm like you 're eighty five like, what kind of battle do you have other than getting out of bed every day? I'm teasing. The point remains, though. I remember Pastor Chuck was listening to him talk about, you know, some of the things he was going through towards the last few years of his life. And he, he described them. He said, this has been the most difficult time of my, my walk with the Lord. The most, not difficult, but challenging time. I've had to trust God more now than I've ever had to in my life. Isn't that interesting? Let's be those who finish well. Amen? Even if the hardest part or the hardest phase of our life is the final one. Well, Hezekiah sends him to the prophet Isaiah with a message and then a request. The message is verse 3. The request is verse 4. So let's look at the message first in verse 3. And they said unto him, thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth and there is not strength to bring forth. Hezekiah lists out for Isaiah, he goes, we are facing three challenges right now. He says, number one, this day is a day of trouble. It uh, just means bad circumstances that have brought deep emotional pain and distress. You ever gone through a day of trouble or a time of trouble? You're experiencing emotional pain and lots of distress. That's what they were going through. Secondly, he said it's a day of rebuke, and that means correction, the infliction of just penalty. God's discipline is upon us. This is not just a tragedy, you know, that's happened and we're sad and we're stressed out. No, this is God's discipline in our life. And then thirdly, he says it's a day of of blasphemy. Now, we read that in English, we think to ourselves, yes, it's a day where God was slandered. That's not the actual word that's used here. The word here means it's a day of shame, disgrace, and humiliation. In other words, they have lost every battle they've fought recently. You ever had a day like that? Like there's a, no winning that day, Right? Like you go, you wake up, and the family is like, lost the morning family battle. You go to work, you're like, lost the work battle. You come home, lost the family battle. And then you lay in bed at night and go, I didn't get a dub at all today. That's what he's saying it's like. We are going through emotional pain, distress. We're under God's discipline. and We've lost every battle. The situation is beyond dire. And what he's communicating, he's saying, Isaiah... If we are left to ourselves in this scenario, we're done for. And he explains it with an image. He says that children are come to the birth, and there's not strength to bring forth. Children, which means there's more than one. So you've got someone who's in labor, and they've got at least twins. I don't know what labor's like in general. Don't want to know what labor's like in general. I've seen labor. That's closest that I want to get. I know people who've had twins, and the experience I've heard is, can be challenging on the physical body. I don't even know what that might look like labor-wise. But the image of a woman here is here of a woman who's in labor with multiple kids, and, and at least one of them's at the point where she's got to push, but she's too exhausted to do so. Now, when that happens to a gal now, we have other means to get the baby and preserve her life. But back then, there was no other way. And if she didn't, didn't have the ability to continue, that usually meant the loss of the child and the mother. And, and that's kind of his point. He says, Isaiah, we got nothing left in the tank. We started this fight, but we can't finish it. We're going to lose. You ever been there? absolutely discouraged and stressed out. It's your own fault. And there's no answer on the horizon. If you're, right, if you're in that place right now, there is good news for you. And the good news is this. The Lord is a merciful God. He is a merciful God. And that, that's Hezekiah's last hope. I don't have anything. I don't have any ideas. I'm stressed out. I'm discouraged. God's disciplining us. We haven't won a fight yet. And I'm out of energy. So my last hope is that perhaps God will be merciful. And So here's my request. He says in verse 4, please pray for us. He says in verse 4, it may be in light of all that's happened, maybe the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God. The perhaps continues. Perhaps the Lord your God will reprove the words which the Lord your God has heard. Wherefore, in light of that possibility, lift up your prayer for the remnant that are left. Remnant that are left up to this point, Assyria, years ago, I think 10 years prior, they had already conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. 11 tribes or 10 tribes, gone. Gone, taken into captivity, spread all over the Assyrian empire. The only Israelis left in the promised land are in Judah. This is it. If Assyria beats them, there is no people of God in the promised land anymore. Pray for us. Perhaps God will be merciful. Perhaps God will come to the defense of his own name. He says, maybe the Lord will hear all the words of Rabshakeh that his master, the king of Assyria, sent him to reproach the living God. The word reproacher means to taunt or insult the Lord. He has taunted, he has insulted the Lord. Maybe, perhaps God will hear that. And he will reprove. It means to punish him, discipline him twice and maybe the lord will hear and reprove for what he's heard hezekiah it's not a mistake that when he refers to the lord here that he calls him the living god right because unlike a lifeless idol the lord can hear right you could shout and scream and pray a thousand times to a bunch of beads or some type of representation of a God, and there's, the ears aren't working. I don't care if, if on the beads there's a little person there and he's got ears, he's not hearing you. But unlike those things, the Lord can hear. So Hezekiah knows that if God wanted to hear every word that Rabshakeh spoke, he could. And it's on that basis that he asks Isaiah to pray for them. Now that's a good decision. He doesn't come to Isaiah and say, Isaiah, what happened isn't fair. He doesn't appeal to the Lord and say, Lord, don't you see all the reforms I brought to the nation? Don't you see how I got rid of all the the idols and all the the high places and and, and I've, I've done things your way? Don't you see? He doesn't do that. He appeals to God's mercy and to the Lord's defense of his own reputation. He says, we don't deserve anything from you, Lord, but the fact is they've called you out. So will you be merciful to us? Will you defend your name against the king of Assyria's insults? I found that God is far more effective at defending his reputation than you and I ever could be. Like, I don't need a, we don't need a rally for Jesus. You said what? You said Jesus isn't Lord? All right, we're going to have the, you know, march on Washington, Jesus is Lord rally. I think it's more effective to say, Lord, you've heard what they've said. Lord, will you fix what they've done? Will you deal with them? I think that's far better than, or at least we'll accomplish far better results than us somehow trying to defend the Lord. I don't I don't know if there's any cuz so I don't want to say never. But when I pondered this in my mind and I searched the scriptures I couldn't find any times where God ever asks his people to defend his name. Now, we're called to make a defense for the faith, obviously to engage with people and, you know, give a defense of our faith. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we don't you know, no apologetics, we don't share with people and say, no, 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 no. You know, here's just what the Bible says about how the earth came into being. I'm not, I'm not saying that. That's not my point. But the concept of when someone insults the Lord and we get all offended and we're like, you you can't do that to my God. More often I find myself when someone's doing that, saying, Lord, please don't give them what they deserve. Please show them mercy. Please rescue them. But if it's so bad that it's somehow getting in the way of what the Lord's trying to do, it's been so much more effective when I just pray, Lord, will you deal with them? Will you defend your name? If you feel the need to defend your name, will you please do so? Rather than me stepping up. I find that that accomplishes far better results. And I also find what also brings better results is praying on the basis of God's mercy and not on the basis of what I think I deserve. In fact, I frequently pray, Lord, please do not give me what I deserve. I'm fully aware of what I deserve. At least I'm cognizant, fully cognizant that I deserve something that's not good. Probably don't really fully understand the depth of how much I deserve to be dealt with. But I'm cognizant of the fact that if I ask for what I deserve, it will not be good in any way. Instead, I think it's good to say, Lord, please don't give me what I deserve. Please bless me. Now, for those of us who struggle with legalism, that's a hard prayer to pray, right? Just to say, God, please bless me. It almost feels like bad, right? Like, you, Lord, please bless me. Because we're like, I don't deserve it. I don't, I don't like, why? Well, it's kind of audacious to even pray such a thing, right? but i forced myself over the years to say these words, Lord, please don't give me what I deserve. Please bless me because I need it. Without it, I can't do anything. So, Lord, please bless me, not because you owe me anything, because, Lord, I just need your hand on my life. I need your blessing in my life. Do you pray like that? It doesn't have to be exactly those words, but do you, do you pray like that? Or are your prayers more like this? Lord, will you please see how hard I try to be a godly husband and save my marriage? Or Lord, will you please see how hard I, I, try, I tried to train up my prodigal child in your ways? Will you please bring them home because of that? While the prayer may be well-meaning, well-intended, it implies that God is somehow in your debt. And God never blesses us on the basis of the fact that He owes us something because He doesn't owe us anything. He's never in my debt. But the Bible teaches that He does bless on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. He does bless on the basis of mercy, of grace, And of love. And that's what Hezekiah is counting on. Well, what's interesting is when the delegation gets there, we find out that God had already told Isaiah that Hezekiah's delegation was coming, and the Lord had given a reply. So, there's a reply waiting with Isaiah for Hezekiah. So, look at verse 5. So, the servants of of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, thus shall you say to your master. I don't even know if they got their message out. Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. He says, here's what you need to do, Hezekiah. Here's God's word for the day. God's instructions. Ready? They're complicated. Be not afraid. You must not be fearful, terrified, panicked, worried. Now, if I'm Hezekiah, my thought would be, I have every reason to be afraid. What do you mean don't be afraid? They were in big trouble, and he did bear some responsibility for that trouble. And yet, the Lord doesn't bring any of that up. He just says, be not afraid. Do you realize how merciful our God is? Like this is the part where if you keep reading your Bible and you don't consider God's mercy, you're going to miss the whole point. So many times in my life, either I've been reading the scripture and God has brought a scripture that will say, be not afraid, or, or God will bring people into my life who will say, well, don't be afraid. Trust the Lord, rest in the Lord, hope in the Lord. <laughs> my internal response, and sometimes my external response, depending upon who's speaking, is, but why? Why be not afraid? I deserve to be afraid. I deserve to lose this time. And what Basis under the sun should I even consider not being afraid. And the basis is always the same. It's God's mercy. Oh, how I love that word. I don't know if it was a trend at that time. Like you ever notice in like uh, Christian music, there's trends from time to time. Like everybody's writing about reckless love for a while. Like it would pop up in like a bunch of songs. And then, so there's these trends. And I don't know if it was just a trend during that day, but when I was in my 20s, my early 20s, a lot of Christian worship, it, it, it emphasized the Lord's mercy. And that word became like my battle cry. Like that was the thing I clung to with all my being. This idea that God in His love for me, would not give me what I deserve. It was mind-blowing to me. It was like the thing you cling to, like you're falling off the edge of the cliff and it's the one branch you've got. My God says He's a merciful God. I felt like I just wanted to sing that word over and over again and I wanted to say the word over and over again. Not what I deserve, but instead something else. Something Way better than even the tiniest of what I deserve. That's how awesome our God is. He is merciful, full of mercy. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you've done it. I don't even care what your attitude has been all those times you did it. God wants to show you mercy just like He wanted to show mercy to Hezekiah and to His people. It's His heart. It's His heart. So much so that when, I want to say it's Habakkuk, but it might be another minor prophet, when he he said these words, he said, Lord, I know you have to judge the people, but because of what we've done, but in your wrath, remember mercy. Jeremiah, as he's watching his own people being marched off in chains, The city of Jerusalem is in rubble. The temple's destroyed, and the Babylonians are leading them away. And he's sitting there in that grotto, in that cave, watching them walk by. And he declares in the book of Lamentations, he says, Thy mercies are new every morning. Today is a day of trouble. It's a day of discipline. But tomorrow, there may be mercy whole, not maybe, there will be mercy. The whole point of this story is who's reading it. These Babylonian exiles, they're the ones who went off. That Jeremiah talked about, your mercies are new every morning. The ones who Hold one another. We read from, when we read the uh, Ezekiel and he's talking about the so he's in Babylon. He's a prophet in Babylon. He knows what's going on there and he's talking about it. everybody says, God's forsaken us. God's done with us. We went too far. It's over. And the writer of 2 Kings is saying his mercies are new every morning. Hezekiah deserved what was coming, but he leaned into the Lord's mercy and God's word to him was, do not be afraid. Maybe you're feeling a little bit like one of those Babylonian exiles right now, or maybe like Hezekiah. God wants to show you mercy. And God also does deal with the wicked. He says, don't be afraid of the words which you've heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Hezekiah was right. The Lord did hear every word. He did hear every word. Do you believe that the Lord hears every word? spoken about you, the cruel words, the harsh words, the lies? He does. Or do you believe that God doesn't see or He doesn't care? The Lord is a living God, but He is also love. He sees, He hears, and He cares. He says, Hezekiah, I did hear every word. I'll deal with him. Why should Hezekiah not be afraid? What's the Lord going to do? Verse 7, He says, Behold, I will send a blast upon him and he shall hear a rumor and he shall return to his own land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now, read that and now consider the situation because whose future looks brighter right now? Not Hezekiah's. That's what the Lord tells me. He goes, this guy's a dead man walking. His time's up. That's not my word to you. One of my favorite parts of the New Testament is when... The disciples come to Jesus and they say, we're going under, the boat's going down. And Jesus, to paraphrase says, I said we're going over to the other side of the sea. I didn't say we were going under. Yeah, it might look like you're going under, but he sees, he knows, he cares, and he made you a promise. And it's at that moment where our faith has to be, okay, God, this is what you said. God says, I'm going to send a blast. The word there means a breath. God's going to breathe something on the sky. Isn't that interesting? All God just needs to go is, and it can all of a sudden alter everything. Like, we think it's so hard. We're like, how are we going to get out of this mess? And all God has to do is go. That's it. Nothing's difficult for the Lord. Isaiah, who's giving this word, numerous times in his prophecies, he says, behold, I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? nothing. He says, ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Is anything too difficult for thee? The Lord answers, nothing's too difficult for me. God's going to breathe on this guy, and the result is going to be that ultra-confidence he has that he can whoop anybody. Something's going to shake it. He's going to hear a rumor. He's going to get a report that's going to cause him to return to his own land. He's going to call off the invasion, and then when he gets back to Assyria he's going to be killed. And so, it doesn't tell us, but I'm sure the delegates go back to Hezekiah and say, this is God's word for you. And now Hezekiah and those delegates, they have a choice. What are they going to do with God's reply? Because they can either trust God's words or they can reject Him. Hezekiah's father had a similar encounter with Isaiah when he said, if you won't trust me, you're not going to be established. And his dad Ahaz said, yeah, I'm not going to trust you, Lord. And he wasn't established. Hezekiah's got the same decision to make right now. The delegates have the same decision to make. Are they going to turn Hezekiah in and maybe hope to save their own skin? What are they going to do? We don't know exactly what they did because the writer doesn't record any official response to the Rabshakeh. The Syrian representative. Now, I do think it's probably safe to assume that he and the people just said, we're just going to stay the course and trust the Lord. These are the types of moments that become turning points in our life, right? When we get, we choose to trust him and then we get to see his faithfulness in those awful circumstances, or when we persist in taking matters into our own hands when we decide to either give in to that fear or to rest in the Lord. Those are the turning point moments in our life. And so if you're facing a decision right now that's like this, then please choose to rest in the Lord. It's way better. It's way better to wait on Him than it is to let the fear get a greater grip on you. Well, when Hezekiah and the people don't respond, Rebsheka leaves his army and he heads back to Lakish to where the king of Assyria is laying siege to get further instructions, but he finds out the king isn't there, and I'm gonna move rapidly through this part. Verse eight, Serebchek returned, and he found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, not Lachish, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. Libna is about five miles north of Lachish. It's not a, nowhere near as important a city, but it's also in the opposite direction of Egypt, which remember, that's what he's trying to get to. So why is he heading back? The word departed doesn't just mean he left Lachish. It means he pulled up, uprooted his army. There's nobody at Lachish anymore. In other words, they didn't defeat Lachish. It had stood. Oh, we were losing every battle. No, you weren't, Hezekiah. You just didn't have all the information. This decision to rebel wasn't a mistake. Lachish was holding and then while he decides to take on a lesser city, the king of Assyria gets more concerning news. It says in verse 9, and when he heard say of Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, which was, behold, he's come out to fight against you, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah. So uh, is the he's the pharaoh during the Egypt's 25th dynasty. At this time, he's only a general. Uh, he wouldn't become king for another 10 years, but the exiles probably only knew him as the king, so that's why the writer refers to him this way. Well, this report concerns the king of Assyria, which I think is interesting because remember he told Hezekiah, oh, you're trusted in Egypt? Egypt's like a bruised reed. Well, yeah, well, then how are you worried about him? Something shook him up. This was God's breath. This was God's breath unnerving his confidence. And so he sends another delegation, Rabshakeh, back to Jerusalem. Verse 10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not your God in whom you trusted deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Rabshakeh returns to Jerusalem and he makes another threat. And his threat is, number one, he says, don't let your God trick you. Now that got a little bit more personal, didn't it? Perhaps he just meant don't listen to the Lord's prophets. But before he said, don't trust in the Lord that he'll deliver you. He's actually sent me here to conquer you. But now he says, don't listen to the Lord because he's going to trick you. Your God's lying to you. Isn't that the same line that the enemy sold Eve? God's holding out on you. He's trying to trick you. He knows the day you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him, and he doesn't want that. He's lied to you. He's tricking you. But the Lord does not deceive us, does he? He does not trick us. That is a lie the enemy tells us when things look bad. And if you've been listening to that lie, please stop. Take those thoughts captive and bring them into obedience to Christ because the only liar is our enemy. And he gives, also gives very persuasive evidence to his lies. So he, he says, don't let your God trick you and look at the evidence. Don't listen to God. Look at the evidence. Verse 11. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed like Gozan, Haran, and Rezeph, the children of Eden which were in Thalassar? Where is the king of Hamath? Where is the king of Arphad? Where is the king of the city of Sepharvan and Hena and Iva? In other words, they're all conquered. Hezekiah, stop making decisions based on what God says and start making decisions based on what your ears hear and your eyes can see. Isn't that the exact opposite of what the Lord tells us to do? He says, look at the evidence, man. You're a fool to keep holding out. You're a fool to trust in your God. If he says he's going to rescue you from us, he's clearly lying because that hasn't happened yet. Do this on your own time because we've got to close as the team comes up. But look at Paul's section in 2 Corinthians 10 when he talks about spiritual warfare. He precedes the whole thing by saying this, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war in the flesh. Trying to fight the lies of the enemy with what you can see or what you can hear or what you can logic out in your mind will never work. Our weapons are not fleshly, Paul says. They are spiritual and they are mighty. So here's my closing question to leave with you. If the spiritual weapons are mighty, and the weapons we're supposed to use are not fleshly, then why do you want to use inferior tools? Don't use inferior tools. Now, this is the second time that the king of Assyria has critiqued Hezekiah's trust in the Lord. It's a second threat. So now what will the king do with this second temptation to give into fear? Well, come back next Sunday night, and we'll find out. Let's all stand. Lord, you're such an awesome God. We thank you for your mercies which are new every morning. We thank you for you are good and your mercy, your love, your loyal love for us endures forever. Lord, we take a moment to pause and think on that. And then, Lord, we run to you. As we sing now, we run to you, to your mercy, to the blessings that you want to bestow, not because we deserve them, but because we need them and because you're good. In Jesus' name, amen.